Going into the California election three weeks ago, there was a powerful schism in the cannabis community. Everyone agreed that Proposition 64, releasing cannabis prisoners from incarceration, was a necessary and overdue thing. And everyone also pretty much agreed that an adult use law was necessary and overdue as well in California. The schism was whether or not you thought the design of the cannabis market as spelled out in Proposition 64 was the right way to legalize in California. So now that the proposition has passed, the conversation for the next two episodes of Shaping Fire are going to focus on what comes next in California. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Amanda Ryman of Drug Policy Alliance. We're going to talk about the new opportunities for entrepreneurs looking to make a move in the new adult use market. We're also going to be talking about the forthcoming state rulemaking process and lay out some timetables for implementation. Then in the next episode, we'll present part two. In part two, I'll talk with Hezekiah Allen of the California Growers Association. We'll talk with him about the concerns of heritage cannabis farmers in Northern California's Emerald Triangle and the actions they will have to take to have a voice in the creation of the state's new adult use market. We'll also have a detailed discussion about market consolidation in cannabis and how we might preserve diversity in the cannabis market and save the family farm. This week's recording does not sound quite as clear as our usual episodes. We ran into some technical issues while recording our guest. The content is still very engaging, though, so I encourage you to turn your volume or treble down just a touch and enjoy the show. My guest this week is Amanda Ryman, Manager of Marijuana Law and Policy at Drug Policy Alliance. In that role, she develops every aspect of DPA's marijuana reform work. Ryman joined DPA in 2012 after working with the famous Berkeley Patients Group Dispensary as Director of Research and Patient Services. Ryman has conducted numerous studies on medical marijuana dispensaries, patients, and the use of marijuana as treatment for addiction, regularly presenting her research at the conferences of the American Public Health Association, American Psychiatric Association, International Cannabinoid Research Society, and the Harm Reduction Coalition. Ryman served as the first chairwoman of the Medical Cannabis Commission for the City of Berkeley, currently serves on the Cannabis Regulatory Commission for the City of Oakland, and has consulted with various cities, states, and nations on the development of medical marijuana policy. Ryman is currently a lecturer in the School of Social Welfare at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches drug and alcohol policy, substance abuse treatment, and sexuality and social work. Ryman earned her B.A. in psychology from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and her master's degree in social work from the Jane Addams College of Social Work. Ryman moved to Oakland in 2002 to attend the University of California, Berkeley, where she earned her Ph.D. in social work in 2006. Ryman's dissertation, Cannabis Care, was the first study focusing on how medical marijuana dispensaries operate as healthcare service providers. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you could make time with your busy schedule. Are things uh, calming down for you a little bit more now that the now that the election is over? Well, yes and no. Um, of course, we are really excited that Prop 64 had victory here in California, but we're also looking to the horizon and with questions about what the new administration means uh, for this new industry. Amen. Everybody's kind of scared about what might the next move the of the. Uh, president-elect may be. Um, but luckily, we don't have to talk about that one today. We just need to tackle California itself. And you know, everybody's excited because now there's a there's more clarity than there had been before. Um, before, you know, medical existed, um, but it was, you know, parts of it were not quite as, as legal as some folks wanted entrepreneur-wise to get involved. But now with a clear green light from the state, um, folks are ready to jump in and to bring, um, you know, their skills from other industries. So so, so 
We know that California is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry in and of itself. As far as the number of participants, though, do we have any idea of how many cannabis companies will likely be formed in California now? Oh, well, there, there'll be thousands. I mean, we're, we're not just talking about companies that actually touch the plant, right? So companies that grow the plant, that process the plant, that distribute the plant, but all of the ancillary services that go along with the cannabis industry, especially in the tech sector. And I think that given that California has such a reputation of being um, innovators when it comes to technology, that we're going to see a huge cannabis tech sector in California, as well as the agricultural sector that comes with actually producing the plant. And I think that's a really good point to make because there are so many people who see the opportunity in cannabis and they want to participate, but it doesn't mean that they have to go through the highly regulatory structure of getting a license or even dealing with the plant. There are so many support opportunities. When it comes to um, the licenses themselves, though, let's talk about those and break those out a little bit because California has gotten more, uh, a higher, more variety of licenses than any other state has legalized at this point. What are the different licenses? Well, the licenses were really outlined first under our Medical Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, which was passed in 2015 by Governor Brown. As you mentioned, even though we've had medical cannabis in California for 20 years, we've been lacking a state-level regulatory system, meaning that anyone that's operating in medical cannabis currently in California is doing so under a local license, and this is primarily just retailers. We really haven't seen the licensing of cultivation, manufacturing. So our Medical Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act outlined licenses for this purpose, and then Prop 64 adopted that licensing structure with a few key differences. So both um, the medical program and Prop 64 outline licensing not just for different activities, but different levels of production within those activities. So I think that the, oh, go ahead. Finish. Well, I was going to say, so there's different types. So we, we cover cultivation, testing, manufacturing, transportation, retail. Uh, but within each license category, there's room for small growers versus big growers, delivery services versus brick and mortar dispensaries. So even within each type of license, there's variability based on how big you are and the exact type of um, company you want to have. So, for example, volatile extractions via, um, via butane and other combustibles is regulated differently than non-volatile extractions such as temperature or agitation. I think that we'll find that uh, California going ahead and, and blessing the kind of model that they used for medical with some, you know, with some changes and making it adult use will have a lot more success like uh, in Colorado, which used a similar model of blessing what they already have versus the, the kind of mess that they have in Washington, where they set aside medical and created something entirely new from, from scratch, reinventing it as they went. I think that with as big as the market's going to be in California, that's one big advantage from day one that will be helpful to entrepreneurs there. Oh, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, honestly, one of the reasons why after 20 years, the legislature finally did pass something in California for medical is because they knew that adult use was on the horizon. And they understood because of what happened in states like Washington versus states like Colorado, that it made sense to set out a structure for medical cannabis um, and create that system alongside the adult use system um, or what will happen 
would happen would be similar to Washington, which is to see the medical system just kind of get usurped into the adult use system and see patients not have the same kind of access um, or the same kind of price discount that they should have given their patient status. While we're talking about medical, there was a lot of concern uh, before the election that Proposition 64 would would harken the end of the medical market, and and you know there were there were no provisions put in the proposition to exclude it. If anything, um, there were uh, provisions to protect it. Um, but based on what you know we saw in Washington, you know what do you think the likelihood is that now that commercial adult use cannabis is legal, that the commercial lobbyists will will seek to squeeze out medical because you know that's that's now a competing market well i don't think it's going to be a competing market i think what's more likely to happen in the coming legislative session is a reconciliation of um prop 64 and mcrsa they have the same agencies governing the two programs there's no differences in the types of products that adult users can access versus medical users So what I think we're likely to see at the end of the day is a consolidated system where patients get a financial break on the cost of the medicine and those who are 18, 19, and 20 years old can access cannabis with a doctor's recommendation and that the price break for those individuals is subsidized by the taxes paid by adult users. I think that that's more likely going to be the model we'll end up seeing given that the regulations for medical and for adult use are so similar. Well, it sounds like the integration of, of how they are going to be regulated, and since they're going to be regulated by the same body, will definitely decrease uh, you know, conflict at the regulatory side. Um, I just can't help but think that uh, the lobbyists in commercial will, will do everything that they can to squeeze medical so that they can start selling to those patients as well, and maybe with you know, a, a different tax rate, uh, but, but to capture those folks anyway. Because do you, do you think that people since they're selling the same things, won't people still tend to want to use their medical cards and just to be able to get the better price in the medical market? Well, I think it's primarily going to be what I call a Costco model, where if you're somebody that uses cannabis frequently, whether that be for whatever reason, um, it makes more sense for you to get a medical card because you're going to get a tax break every time you use it versus somebody that uses cannabis maybe every once in a while and doesn't really make sense for them to go and get a medical card and they'd rather just pay the tax. Um, so I think that there'll be options for people who, based on you know how frequently they use cannabis, the thing is, is that even though we haven't had state-level regulations for 20 years, we absolutely have an industry. So Chibachu, Kiva, Bang, I mean, all of these companies have been in California dispensaries for years now. And so it's not as if there's a whole new flood or room for a whole new flood of commercial products in California at the moment, because we really do have quite a variety of commercial cannabis providers right now today in the state of California. So while I do think that there will be some diversification, because there may be products that people in the adult use market want more often, such as low dose. Um, we're seeing, you know, a- adult users more interested in low dose products where patients are looking for higher dose products. So we will see some diversification. Um, but at the end of the day, patients will have access to the same products and the same name brands that they have right now. 
you know, the point that California already has a strong exist, pre-existing market uh, was made, uh, oh, I guess it was three shows ago. We had Dr. Dominic Corva on the show from CASP, and he made the point, he says, you know, everybody's talking about the green rush and the new green rush in California, but really, you know, California started a green rush in the 1970s, and it's just never stopped. <laughs> That's accurate. That's absolutely accurate. And, you know, when I go and give talks uh, to younger folks today who want to get in the industry or are interested in it, I say, you know, you're not going to be a master cultivator and you're probably not going to have a dispensary. Um, you know, these jobs are taken. And, you know, our job with regulation is to allow people who have already been working in this industry an entree into the legal market. It's not to pave the way for all kinds of new companies to come in. And so, you know, we want folks who are already operating to be able to come into compliance. And I think that's where we need to focus on first, because we do have so many operators already here in California. I think that's a really good point. And I want to talk more about the specifics of the opportunities for potential new entrepreneurs. But let's go ahead and take our first short break. You are listening to Shaping Fire. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You have so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into something as deeply as you'd like. You know there is more that you could do to reach out to new customers and to encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time and you're not ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. Blunt Branding principles Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that is pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and Anthony will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on three projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal, instead of just making me a pretty logo. Similarly, every friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. So grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our weekly newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Amanda Ryman of Drug Policy Alliance. So Amanda, right before the break, you said something that, that stuck out for me. You said that the way that things are set up now, um, it's, it, there's not really a lot of room being created for new companies, that really the focus right now is going to be the pre-existing market that exists um, 
in California moving into the licensed structure. Can you break that out for a little bit for me more? Because, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this show are, are thinking about, okay, now that adult use is legal, let's take our skills and move into California cannabis. And, and your suggestions seem to be that just because the law has been passed doesn't necessarily mean there's a ton of room for new companies. Well, I first want to make the point that under Prop 64, there is a California residency requirement. So you had to have been a resident of California, I believe, back from 2015. And that residency requirement is until 2019. So if you're out there somewhere else in the United States and you live somewhere else and you're thinking, I'm going to move to California and get a license, you are not. Uh, because we wanted to, again, ensure that those that have already been living and working in the industry in California have priority. And there's also priority to already existing companies, meaning dispensaries, manufacturers that have already been existing, but in this kind of gray, locally regulated area, also have first priority. But that doesn't mean that there's not room. I think it's really about where the need is going to be. And in California, the need is not for people to grow cannabis or sell cannabis um, or even make cannabis products. In California, the need is helping these companies come into compliance. So the need is for software and for packaging and for sustainable agriculture methods and things that are going to help those that are working in the industry make the leap from the gray market to a very heavily regulated system here in California. And I think the opportunities there are pretty much endless because you're going to have a ton of businesses that have been operating in a way that is not satisfactory to California regulatory standards. And we're going to have seed to sale and all of these things that go along with regulation. And we're going to have to have companies that can help those in existence comply and be legal, uh, especially given the scrutiny we'll likely face at the federal level. You know, I think that's an interesting aspect to point out there that, um, uh, that just because licenses may not be the way to go doesn't mean that our listeners need to feel crestfallen that they somehow can't get into the cannabis industry. Because as you know, I tell my clients all the time, you know, if you can come up with an idea that's not in that is, does not need a license, you'll have so much an easier time having your business because your regulatory structure will be so much less. And that when it comes to moving into any new industry, but especially the cannabis industry, that decreasing your risk as much as possible is the name of the day. So, so if folks are listening and they're like, oh, wow, are you telling me that all the growers are already there? It's like, yeah, that might be the case, but that doesn't mean that it's, there isn't tons of opportunity for, um, ancillary business models. Absolutely. Anything that will help those in the industry do things um, to be more compliant, to make things more seamless, uh, you know, in introducing processes to streamline, to make it easier for people in every level of production. We haven't had that. You know, we've had uh, people doing the jobs. We've had really no infrastructure in this industry. And that's what's going to be needed in order to keep up and satisfy the regulatory demand. 
Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a little bit about rulemaking because you know the proposition only goes so far itself, and then you know th- there are groups that then have to jump in to regulate their part of the bigger pie. And and as we've no- found in the states that are already legalizing, um, sometimes that that secondary wave of rulemaking can get awfully messy. So um, who is actually going to be implementing Proposition sixty four in California, and what does that look like for folks who are who are trying to understand the landscape. So um, both MCRSA and Prop 64 hand over the regulatory structure and rulemaking to the Bureau of Marijuana Regulation, uh, which is at the state level. It's a state agency, and it includes representatives from the Department of Food and Ag, the Department of Public Health, the Board of Equalization, the Department of Consumer Affairs, and it also has an advisory board made up of those folks, plus researchers from the public health field, people from the cannabis industry itself, patients, right? So people that have a vested interest. And Prop 64 and MCRSA really set out a blueprint for what regulation will look like. And now, it's up to this bureau and with feedback from folks in the state and in the industry to fill in the blanks. Um, Over the next year, not only is the bureau going to be doing their due diligence and reaching out to farmers and others to figure out the best way to implement these practices, given what's already happening in California, um, but we're also going to have to figure out how the licenses are going to work, um, you know, how you apply for a license, uh, to kind of get all of those wheels in motion, that's something that will also happen at the state level. So what, what's the time frame looking like? You know, everybody was excited after, um, you know, the election uh, two weeks ago. But now now that, that the, the, the maybe even the harder work has to happen of making this all real, um, you know, how long are we looking before the first licenses are going to be handed out? You know, obviously, these are going to be estimates. But what are you what are you thinking? Well, the mandate from the initiative is that uh, January 2018, that the state has to start issuing licenses by January 2018. So it'll take about a year. Um, that's what we saw in Colorado and elsewhere. Now, of course, what we saw in Oregon was that the state allowed dispensaries to start serving adults before the licenses officially came out for the adult use only stores. Um, and so we may see something similar here in California, given that we do have licensed dispensaries across the state, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if we saw the Bureau getting close to that date, maybe not quite ready to launch everything, see a compromise with, well, if you're a licensed dispensary, you can now start serving people 21 and up who don't have a doctor's recommendation, given that the products are the same. Now, in Oregon, that wasn't the case. Uh, Medical patients had access to different products than adult users, namely medical patients had access to things besides flowers. Um, Here in California, both groups have access to everything. So it wouldn't be unheard of for someone who's now serving patients with a doctor's note to open up that service to those 21 and up. My gosh, that would be such a windfall for all those retailers, my goodness, that they're already up and going. And then as part of the transition, they might be able to to sell to anyone who's over 21. Wow, what an opportunity. 
It would be, but then again, you have to remember that here in California, it's no trick to get a doctor's recommendation. So, you know, for the most part, a lot of the medical cannabis population here in California resembles the adult use population. Um, So different than in other states where you have very restricted lists of conditions for which people can become patients, the adult use market is quite different than the medical market. It's not necessarily the same here in California. So over the next year, um, the new regulations are going to come together. How to uh, apply for these licenses will come together. And also the folks who don't want to see this happen will be making their moves too. You know, in other states, we have seen challenges with moratoria by local municipalities. Does it look like there will be zoning issues in California like that too, where, you know, this is passed at the state level, but individual cities are will, will pass a, a moratorium that says, no, you can't do cannabis business here? Oh, absolutely. We've already seen that. We saw places passing that before Prop 64 even passed. Um, You know, it's no secret that California is a bit divided on this issue. And you have localities in the Bay Area and elsewhere that are very proactive that are really wanting to study this issue and bring cannabis to their localities in a respectful way. And then you have places that just hate cannabis and they're going to ban it outright and they want nothing to do with it. The thing about Prop 64 is that it denies local revenue to localities that ban commercial cannabis businesses. So while I think a lot of these bans are reactionary, what we'll see is that counties and cities whose neighbors are regulating commercially Their residents are just going to drive 10 miles down the road, buy cannabis, and then all the tax revenue is going to go to their neighboring city. So, you know, we do see even a patchwork of alcohol regulation here in California with counties regulating alcohol differently. But the decision to become a dry county or a dry city definitely has economic implications. Now, the one thing that localities cannot do is they cannot ban personal cultivation for adults. So the ability for each household to cultivate six plants indoors or outdoors in an enclosed structure away from public view, that right went into effect November 9th, and localities are not allowed to ban that activity. What's the nature of the difference in legality between um, a, a city hosting a business versus a city banning individual personal grows? I mean, wh- what's the difference between those legally that that one can be done away with at the local level and the other cannot? Well, you're really giving a city the right to regulate commercial activity within its borders, not personal activity. So if you legalize possession of cannabis, the cultivation of cannabis as a legal personal activity, the city does not have the right to ban that activity. They can tell you where you can do it, which we already did in the proposition. We said you either have to do it indoors, or if you're trying to do it outdoors, it has to be away from public view to cut down on the risk of robbery. So a locality cannot make a decision to not uphold the rights given to an individual under the proposition. What they can do is make the decision about which commercial enterprises they want existing within their borders. And that's another vote for uh, entrepreneurs to start ancillary businesses as well, because if you're not holding a license, you're just an HR company or a marketing company or a software company with cannabis clients versus having a license and having to be worrying about local moratoria. That's true. I mean, that's definitely true in terms of getting a business license and getting into the business. 
But, you know, just as a cautionary tale, we have had several reports recently of people who are involved in ancillary businesses related to the cannabis industry, like legal work, that have been denied home loans and other types of financial benefits because of the nature of their work. So, you know, just because you're not selling cannabis or growing cannabis doesn't mean there's not a risk that you're taking being involved with the industry. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for anybody that wants to get involved in the industry to understand the movement and to understand the activism that comes with being a part of this industry. Because if you're not ready to be an activist, I would caution you against getting involved in the cannabis industry. You know, that's another good point that you were making because, you know, a lot of folks are like, okay, the law is passed, the activism's been done, I can just come on in and start my business now. And it's like, oh, no, no, you're playing it too simple. You know, uh, cannabis entrepreneurs have got to be activists, both to, you know, protect their turf from moratoria, to make sure that it doesn't get rolled back, and, and also to be active in the state legislature so that as the rulemaking evolves, it, it evolves in ways that don't exclude or challenge their own business model. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say, you know, I've been so impressed with the sun-grown farmers and their willingness to engage with the Bureau during this rulemaking period, because that's kind of one of the biggest mysteries is like cannabis farming and what are the costs associated with it? What's the best way to tax it and regulate it? And without the cannabis farmers themselves coming forward and being open and honest about what they're doing and how it works best, we would definitely not be as far as we are in terms of um, acknowledging the usefulness of sun-grown cannabis. So it really takes people willing to come out and to be honest about their thoughts and feelings about the issue, but you have to be aware and educated on the issue before you can be an effective advocate. We are going to take another short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. Businesses everywhere are constantly striving to reach out to people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into a relationship with their customers is essential. That is what we offer. We will explain your service or product and what sets it apart as desirable and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot, you can do that too. Because the podcast is young, but growing at an exceptionally fast rate, if you become an advertiser on the Shaping Fire podcast now, you are going to pay a fraction of the cost we'll be asking for in just a few months. And yet everyone listening both now and to the back catalog of interviews later will hear about your company again and again for years. It's a great deal for you. Pay a small amount now because the show is new, but take advantage of the huge listening audience we will have forever. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and newsletter advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Amanda Ryman of Drug Policy 
Alliance. So Amanda, right before the break, um, you were talking about how important it was for sun-grown cannabis growers to uh, participate and get their feedback and experience in, into the regulatory process. And, you know, a lot of people are concerned that with the great increase of cannabis growing across the country, but specifically right now in California, that electricity consumption is going to skyrocket because the demand for cannabis is going to get so um, increase so quickly. Now, California is one of those places that cannabis just loves, and a huge part of your industry is is being grown outdoors or in greenhouses by the sunshine and not from generated electricity. Um, what are some estimates uh, that people have been discussing in California about what direction the industry might grow as far as electricity usage versus uh, doing it in greenhouses and taking advantage of the sun? Well, I mean, cannabis traditionally has been grown outdoors. It's a plant, um, you know, just like any other plant. The reason why we saw cannabis cultivation come inside was because of prohibition and the fact that people had to hide what they were doing. I think that there's a culture around that still that we're going to see dissipate with time. But there are some barriers to moving full into sun-grown. I mean, you know, if cannabis was not as stigmatized and as demonized as it is right now, all cannabis would be grown outdoors. The problem is that we have states that legalize, but you're not allowed to ship cannabis between states. So Massachusetts or Maine, they can't grow cannabis outside all year round. They have very harsh winters, but they're not allowed to import cannabis from California like they would import wine or other commodities and agricultural products that grow better in other parts of the state. They don't say, well, hey, we'll just grow our strawberries indoors. They say, no, let's get strawberries from other places where it's still warm in December. Um, so I think that the lack of interstate commerce really puts some states in a bind in terms of their cultivation because it's going to be very difficult for them to do outdoor, which means they're going to have to rely more on the energy-consuming indoor model. Eventually, when we're able to ship cannabis between states, I see states like California and others that are naturally made for cannabis cultivation outdoors to start to fill the need of the other states so that they don't have to rely so heavily on indoor production. I think that is an, uh, a risk assessment that a lot of folks in legalizing states are missing when they are setting up their indoor grows, um, not necessarily expecting that there'll be eventually an interstate market. Because you know, as soon as you allow interstate traffic, um, it will totally remake the face of the industry yet again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the wine industry, um, and especially the fact that we're going to have appellations for cannabis, um, folks in other states are going to want to get cannabis from certain appellations. Um, and so we're really going to see a difference once we start to do interstate commerce. And I really feel that at that point, the indoor market will really start to dwindle. Um, of course, we also have a whole generation of people coming off of prohibition when nobody really knows what cannabis is supposed to look like. We all have our ideas from high times about what buds are supposed to look like. Um, when I was working at Berkeley Patients Group, I used to call that bag appeal because you would have sun-grown cannabis that cost two-thirds the price and tested at the same level of THC, yet people would still gravitate towards these indoor buds because they looked tighter, um, you know, they looked different. And so people were associating that with quality. 
I think that's going to change and people are going to associate quality with things like being pesticide free, being grown outdoors, being grown organically and being grown in a specific appellation. We can already see that happening at a at a brand strategy level with folks who are using greenhouses, um, not calling it outdoor because outdoor has kind of got that reputation of, you know, a hidden grow somewhere that's been done cheap and fast versus sun grown or or. Um, uh, or, or similar words, which suggest that, okay, yeah, it's, it's grown under the sun, but it doesn't mean that it's not done without exceptionally high quality growing technique. And, you know, you mentioned pesticide and um, the other legalizing states have had a lot of challenges with that, you know, going to market with flowers that we eventually found out were rife with pesticides. Um, does the new regulatory structure in California, is that pre-baked in that um, pesticide testing will take place or is, or is the part the particulars for that still to be evolved? Oh, no, that's baked in. So testing for both um, potency and purity. Right on. So now we just need to um, get um, more uh, labs up and running. But I guess I guess also that's a that's an assumption that doesn't necessarily play for California, because um, since you already have labs for testing in the medical market, um, a lot of them will just be expanding more, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, uh, most of the reputable dispensaries have been testing their product for several years now. Um, so and and all of the big commercial edible um, and other product companies have their products tested as well. So again, you know, we've one thing that's really interesting is that when you look at the evolution of the cannabis industry in California, and I started studying it back in 2002, when you would walk into a dispensary and you would get a brownie, it was basically just wrapped in cellophane. Someone made it at home and brought it in and you had no idea how strong it was or what the ingredients were, or if brownie A was going to be a lot different than brownie B. Um, And then, you know, looking just 10, 15 years later, the sophistication and the packaging and the testing, nobody mandated that companies did that. That was all self-regulation by the industry in response to patients wanting to know what was in their products. And I think that as much flack as the cannabis industry gets for just caring about money and it's the big green rush, the folks that started this industry, they really cared about their patients and about what they were giving consumers. And if they didn't, we wouldn't see them taking the steps to do packaging and labeling and testing before the state absolutely mandated it. You know, that's, there's reasons why the cannabis probiotic growing movement homeland is the Emerald Triangle. You know, the, the growers there early on for medical, they were very, uh, they had a lot of concern about what was going into their patients because it was a labor of love for them. And it's great that that, that kind of a headspace is, is at the front of the new commercial market as well. You know, Amanda, you know, there's one thing I want to ask you because, you know, a lot of folks that are listening, they may be moving towards cannabis and a lot of them may be new to the industry. Um, they're going to bring their, their skill set from another industry over into cannabis, either with a license or without. And a lot of those folks are going to run into a situation like folks did in other states where they want to hire a consultant to help them bridge from their present industry experience to cannabis. And there have been so many horror stories of consultants from other states and folks getting swindled. Um, I'd just like to you know, give you an opportunity um, to, to share some of your experience of, of what entrepreneurs might want to think about when vetting their consultants to, to hope that they can choose one that's going to really be to their benefit. 
Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, everybody's a consultant. Um, everybody's been in the business forever. You know, it, it's getting really crazy out there. So, I mean, be, doing due diligence is very important. Um, just because somebody seems like they have their shit together does not mean they have their shit together because there's a lot of money that you can pay people to make it look like you have your shit together. Yep. So <laughs> you want to really ask them, you know, how long have you really been doing this? Where did you get your start? Um, you know, what companies have you worked with? If you have somebody that's been doing this for less than five years, I would say don't do it because the industry has changed a lot, but not having the knowledge of where it was 10 years ago is really not going to play well for you as a new business person. And then also I would make sure that whoever you hire has a working knowledge of government, um, how policies are made how bills are passed in the legislature has some kind of experience with lobbying or knowledge about how policy works, because this is different than any other industry in that the policies that are passed will absolutely impact your ability to succeed. And if you don't have someone that has a lot of knowledge that's willing to go to Sacramento, you know, a few times a week to really stay on top of the hundreds of marijuana bills that are going to come down the pike this year, you're not doing yourself a service by hiring them. So, you know, you have to have somebody that's political and you also have to have somebody that has a working knowledge of where this movement has come from. You know, recently we had this marijuana business conference in Las Vegas and a friend of mine was there representing students for sensible drug policy. And she said that three people asked her what the drug war was. Wow. And I would say if that's you and you're out there going, hmm, what is the drug war? Just stop. Just go turn around, <laughs> walk away from the industry, because honestly, you're doing us more harm than good. Well, that's a great segue to my next question was going to be, you know, cannabis entrepreneurs have got to be active learners, probably as much or more than just about any other industry. But we also know that there's so much poor information online when you're trying to do your research. Now, specifically for California, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Number one, um, where can clean information about what's going on in the legislature and with the um, regulatory um, groups be found online for California? And then second, do you have any other sources for information for entrepreneurs that you would recommend they go to instead of just blindly Googling whatever their question is? Yes, never blindly Google anything. That's, <laughs> I think, is a, is a good lesson for people. Um, so the National Cannabis Industry Association which has a chapter in California, the California Cannabis Industry Association, I would really recommend checking them out. Um, you know, they have really stay on top of things that are happening in Sacramento and at the federal level. They have lobbyists. They have a wide variety of companies that they represent. They have caucuses that are um, industry specific. So caucuses for manufacturers versus distributors versus cultivators. And so, you know, I think that's a really good way to stay on top of things. Also, the Bureau of Marijuana Regulation, their website at the state level will have updates on bills that have been introduced. And they also have been doing these town halls across the state for different sectors of the industry where they want to hear feedback from people that want to get involved and in kind of what their concerns are. So I would definitely recommend doing those things. Um, and then there are some great incubators and accelerators out there. Um, one in particular is Canopy. So Canopy started um, in Boulder and they just opened offices in Berkeley and also down in San Diego. And they are an accelerator specifically for companies that do not touch the plant. 
So the companies that we're talking about, the ancillary services, the software, the streamlining, they're the ones that would support those kinds of businesses. So if you're in California, you know, I would check them out because they have classes and they have opportunities for people to join their programs to help grow their businesses. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, you know, Amanda, before we uh, say goodbye here, there's one thing I wanted to hit on that's actually happening there in in your locale there in Oakland um, that I think is interesting to point out. You know, I've read a couple articles about the um, the ideas of reparations for at-risk um, minority communities that have been... Um, uh, unbalancedly uh, hit with the drug war. And, and I believe it's the city of Oakland has actually, uh, is go- actually giving deference to licenses to folks um, that have, are from these minority groups. I'm obviously not explaining it very well, but that's what I'd like you to do. Could you explain that policy? Sure. Um, so here in California, we have a law at the state level against affirmative action, meaning that we're not allowed to do set-asides for women in minority-owned businesses. So some localities like Oakland have tried to figure out what is a proxy for that so that we can make sure that those that have been most impacted by the drug war have as many, if not more, opportunities to get involved in this new regulated industry than others do. So here in Oakland, the idea was put forth to set aside um, half of the licenses for cannabis businesses for people that have been negatively impacted by the drug war, either because they live in a part of the city that is heavily policed for drugs or they themselves have been incarcerated in Oakland for a marijuana-related offense within the past, I think, 10 years or five years. Um, So that was the original plan. It's been a bit controversial, not because of its intention. So there are no people that think this is a bad idea. I mean, people agree that and recognize that there have been communities that have been more impacted by marijuana prohibition than others. However, there's been a bit of a political fight over who exactly should be included in this equity program. And one of the city council members has really derailed the process with um, really quite crazy demands, such as current marijuana businesses have to give 25% of their revenue, including retroactively to the city, Um, just things that are really making it difficult to move forward with this plan. So right now we're looking at alternatives, um, including, you know, opening up the number of police beats uh, that people can qualify for the plan, um, making it so it's not just a, a marijuana incarceration in Oakland, but anywhere in California. And so right now we're going back and forth with the city about what exactly this plan will look like. Unfortunately, It's putting Oakland behind our other neighboring cities in terms of their licensing and regulations around cannabis. And this is concerning because Oakland has always been kind of on the forefront of cannabis regulation. And I think that for um, they've kind of been sitting on their laurels like, oh, well, Oakland's always out in front. So we can take as much time as we want because no one else is going to do this licensing. But they're wrong. And surrounding cities have started licensing what Oakland wants to do. And so we're seeing businesses, unfortunately, start to leave the city of Oakland to seek licenses in other localities. So we definitely support the idea of helping people that have been most impacted get into the industry, but we have to do it in a way that makes sense and in a way that will maintain Oakland as a competitive city in the cannabis industry for decades to come. 
Wow, that's a really interesting situation. Talk about competing goods. I mean, you, not only are you trying to um, help these minority communities that have been impacted, but at the same time, at a, at a city level, you need to be able to protect uh, Oakland as a business entity and make sure that these companies decide to set up shop there. Wow. Well, we'll be very interested to check back in with you on that down the line as the uh, regulatory uh, structure around all of this uh, evolves. So, so I think that's where we're going to stop for today. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Amanda. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about Amanda Ryman on the Drug Policy Alliance website at drugpolicy.org. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.